Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 79 and help us, oh God, would you please join me now in prayer? Father, as we look at this great psalm, there is so much that we could consider from it. Um, it is it is your word. It is inspired. It is without error. It is without the possibility of error. And yet, it, your word is clear. It is life. It is food for our souls. It is binding on our lives. And so, Lord, as we look at this uh, text now, as we study it together, Lord, I pray that we our perspective will be shifted that our focus would be fixed on Christ, Christ revealed in the word, Christ for all of life, Christ, the hope of our souls, and, and Christ, even the hope that, that, we, that we will one day fully attain when we are before your face and we are made totally like you. Lord, help us as we look now at this text to be reminded, to be instructed, to be confronted, and even challenged and yet comforted in the midst of all that is going on in our world today, that there is hope, there is hope now because of Christ, and yet there is fully, that hope will be fully realized at your coming. So Lord, help us now as we look at your word, help us to gaze on the glory of Christ, and may our gaze be fixed there evermore, every day, every moment of each hour, and every minute of that hour. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 79. Psalm 79, hear what the word of the Lord has to say to us today. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have, they have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you, and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpour blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunt with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Well, this is the reading of God's holy, precious word. 
You know, Psalm 79, it's a classic psalm of lament, very much in the spirit of Psalm 74, which likewise greed is greed because of the destruction of Jerusalem. You see, the main difference is that whereas Psalm 74 took God around in prayer to places where the city had been destroyed, the emphasis in this psalm is on the people and their humiliation. And while it's possible that Psalm 79 refers to a handful of different historical events, it most likely it is most likely that the psalmist wrote in light of the destruction of the covenant people in Nebuchadnezzar's overthrow of Jerusalem in 587 BC. Verses 2 through 3 of this psalm are quoted by the non-canonical book of 1 Maccabees 717 in light of the occupation of Jerusalem during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes in the 3rd century BC. This indicates that Psalm 79 is seen as a template for similar disasters. Indeed, to this day, Psalm 79 is recited Friday afternoon at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem as sorrowful Jews bemoan their final loss of the temple in 70 AD. And now it is interesting to wonder about the order of this collection of psalms attributed to Asaph in Psalms 73 through 83. The preceding psalms conclude with praise to God for providing David and his monarchy to lead for the people in Psalms 78, 70 through 72. And now fast forwarding 400 years, we find that the sins of David heirs caused God to remove from them all the blessings that they had previously enjoyed including God's house on Mount Zion. So Psalm 79 stands as a monument to the calamity of sin, even as it ends with hope in a saving God. So our first point today that we're going to consider from this psalm is an outrage plea. The first point that we're going to consider is an outrage plea. And this psalm, it begins just with that, an outrage plea that, that seeks for God to punish his people's enemies. Our text says, O God, the psalmist begins unburdening his soul in the presence of the Lord and trusting that, that God will care about the suffering of his nation. Asaph's complaint details the, the sacrilege involved in the pagan destruction of the temple and the degradation of Israel's people, saying in verse 1 of this psalm, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. And so the purpose of the temple was to communicate God's holiness to the earth. The nations are ungodly, and Asaph is outraged that they should trample God's inheritance and profane the holy temple of God. And in mind is the humiliation of God's people and the way in which this calamity reflects on the Lord. You see, not only were Israel's people slain in great numbers, but they have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth, according to verse 2. Apparently, the slain so outnumbered the living that the task of giving decent burials was too large to accomplish. Bones and corpses made the Lord's sanctuary uh, of giving decent burials too large to accomplish. And so bones and these corpses made the Lord's sanctuary unclean. And this is now the state of the entire city, according to verse 3. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. The Babylonians, following the standard ancient practice, dishonor their, their conquered foes by leaving them as carrion for birds and beasts. 
And so the psalmist is particularly grieved to note that the number of those defiled includes God's faithful servants who were caught up in the debacle. Now, the psalmist's reflection, it reminds us that, that the people of God have always considered a proper burial to be a Christian duty. In fact, recently, the practice of cremation has spread in our society, even among God's people. God's people, though, historically have avoided this practice, instead showing honor to the body even in death. John Calvin states that God intends that in the burial of men, there, there should be some testimony to the resurrection of the last day. And this is accomplished by burial of the body that Christ will summon from the grave before long. Now, it was not only the dead who were disgraced by Jerusalem's fall, but also the living. And so the psalmist laments in Psalm 79, verse 4. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. Israel had long lived in pride for her covenant relation with God, and so now the surrounding peoples delight to believe the nation abandoned by the Lord. Here, the cruelty of the world is seen not only in the bloodthirsty desire to slave and destroy, but also in the propensity to mock and to taunt those who are brought low by calamity, especially the people of God. Well, our psalmist next is going to give us some reflections on prayer. Now, the opening lament, it, it's issued forth in pleas for the intervention of God and from these petitions, we may make uh, useful observations regarding our own relationship to God in prayer. First, believers in distress pray to God because we know that he is sovereign over all of our affairs. And I, and I know that many people, they greatly, even Christians, struggle with this idea that God is sovereign over all things. But, but here's the thing. Our God is in control of history. It may, it may seem that all of history is moving willy-nilly uh, according to whatever happens on the news. And yet beyond that, beyond the, the, the events of the days, uh, of the years of our lives, is God. He, he is from everlasting to everlasting. He is from beginning to end. He is, I am, he, who he says he is in Exodus 3.14. God is eternally self-sufficient in and of himself. He is enough. And so when we talk about God being sovereign, we're talking about the one who made all things, who orders all things by the word of his power. We're, we're talking about the one who gives us the very life and the very breath that, that we have. And so we pray in faith, trusting that God will act in his providence because he orders all things according to the word of his power and upholds all things according to the word of his power. And so as we come back to Psalm 79, what we see is Asaph responds to Jerusalem's calamity by calling out to God to relent of his chastisements. In verse 5, he says this, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Now, notice that while destruction was brought by foreign peoples, Asaph knows that it was God who struck Israel because of her idolatry and sin. And so he does not pray as though God were ignorant of the situation or even somehow uninvolved. But in his misery, he prays for God to relent. And so in this case, it's clear that the psalmist knows that God is acting in punishment to his people. 
And perhaps even he was aware of the prophecy given not long before in Jeremiah 7.33 when the weeping prophet foretold that the dead bodies of the people will be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Now, this does not mean, to be clear, that the outward calamities always indicate God's chastening displeasure, since believers suffer for other reasons. But when our conscience afflicts us under trial with an awareness of high-handed sins that we commit, then we should expect that God's hand may be at work and we must pray to him with anticipation of help. James Boyce writes this, The hand of God does often seem heavy upon us, and his working in our lives seems slow, but it is not forever. Remember that, and it will not be more than you can bear. And since God is the one who has the mercy we need, we need to pray even in our own calamity. William Plummer writes that if we can bring our our woes before God in prayer, we have done the best thing that we can possible. You see, we're, we're, we're talking about the God who, well, there's a Hebrew word, hased. We're talking about, and it means that God is faithful. It means that God will act according to his plan and his will. It means that, that God is who he says he is. His, he is loyal to himself and he's loyal to his people. The Bible is clear in Titus 1-2, for example, that God never lies. God will always act according to who he has revealed himself to be in the word of God. And, and you know what? We know from Jesus' own teaching in John 16, where he says, in this world, you're going to have tribulations. I mean, all we have to do is, is look at a book like an epistle like James or or First Peter or he, the book of Hebrews. These, these epistles, they are written to people who were afflicted. They were suffering. They were experiencing real issues in real time and real space like many of us are. And what we need to understand is that God is at work. And so we pray to God. He is sovereign. He is ordering all things in the, under his providence by the word of his power, which he is using to uphold and even govern all the affairs of all the cosmos and our personal lives. See, God is the one that we can trust. It doesn't get any simpler than even Proverbs 3, 5-6, through 6, which tells us very clearly and plainly to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and to lean not on our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledge Him. Notice what it says. It doesn't say trust for your best life now. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, you know, hope for all your dreams and all of everything to happen. No, what it says is trust the Lord. What does that mean? It means that we must believe that that God is sovereign. We must believe that the Lord has good intentions towards us, that all the events and all the things that are happening in our lives, they are not beyond his the hit the knowledge of his plan or his purposes, and nor will his plans or his purposes ever be thwarted. And what this means is in the midst of the times when it it seems like life is just caving in around us. And that can even be because of financial reasons or emotional reasons or uh, other reasons. The Lord is there. 
we use this word immutability to express this reality that God is unchanging. Hebrews 13:5 and verse 9 very clearly tell us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 4:3 tells us that one of the very things God's will for us is to sanctify us. That is to make us more like Christ. That's what God is doing in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our challenges. He is making us more like Christ. Now, second, the ability to pray to God is a sign that not all is lost. The loss of God's temple building on Mount Zion seemed an irredeemable loss because that was a place where Israel's intercessors had met with God. And yet the te- with the temple destroyed, Asaph is still able to pray to the Lord, and this provides hope. The prophet Jonah learned the same lesson when he was cast overboard and swallowed by the great fish in Jonah 1.17. And in that dark, watery grave, Jonah said, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice in Jonah 2.2. And though he was in desperate straits, he prayed in verse 6 of Jonah 2, Yet you have brought up my life from the pit. And now it's notable that Jonah prayed this before he actually had been delivered from inside the sea monster. His point was that simply by being able to exercise his faith in God through prayer, he was conscious of possessing God's salvation. You see, when we pray to God in faith, we too, we receive the proof of our salvation and we enjoy a confident hope that God will deliver us in the end. Third, Asaph's prayer raises questions about the propriety of Christians praying for God's judgment and wrath on others. In Psalm 79, verse 6, Asaph appeals to God, saying, Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you, and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. Embedded in this petition are are two reasons for God to overthrow the wicked. First, they do not know you or, or call upon your name, our text says. And this, this might be the thought of an, as an excuse for ungodliness, but instead for Asaph, it marks a willful, idolatrous neglect of the abundant evidence of God, as we see in Romans 1.19 through 21. And so the pagan nations that attacked Jerusalem, they deserve ju- judgment for their unbelief, and as a second reason for their violence against the people of God. Psalm 79, 7 says, For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. And so the question is raised whether Christians may pray in this same manner, seeking God to judge and even condemn the wicked. After all, Jesus taught in Matthew 5, 33 through 44, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so does this teaching bar Christians from praying for God to thwart the plans of evil deceivers and even murderers? Well, the answer is that we must discriminate between our prayers for individuals who harm us and our prayers for God to defend his gospel in the church. John Calvin writes this, None may pray in this manner, but those who have clothed themselves with a public character and who, by laying aside all personal considerations, have exposed and are deeply interested in the welfare of the whole church. And what this means very practically is that we are to pray against evil and even against those who pursue evil while maintaining a spirit of grace towards our personal enemies. Christians above all others ought to have compassion on those in the grip of sin, 
even when that sin is committed against us. Remembering the Bible's teaching to overcome evil with good, as Romans 12, 21 says. And at the same time, we pray to God to glorify his justice and judging those who will not believe and in protecting the gospel cause and its people. Christians pray against evil, asking, as George Hone suggests, that, that God not gratify any vindictive spirit of theirs, but to vindicate his own attributes, would break the teeth of the oppressor and work a public and glorious salvation, at beholding which the very adversaries themselves might possibly be converted. And in the face of those who not only revile God's church, but also mock divine justice, with our bloodthirsty violence, Christians pray for God's cause to be vindicated in judgment so that his name will be feared. In fact, we can apply this today. And one application today may, might be made with respect to Christian opposition to the abortion industry. Christians, of course, pray that God would protect the unborn babies threatened with slaughter and for God to thwart their plans to advance this evil as well as to vindicate justice by judging those who will not repent. And at the same time, Christians who plan and commit acts of violence against abortion clinics are guilty of sin against God, as are those who are vindictively revile individuals involved in this bloodthirsty industry. Many of the greatest advances against abortion have come through expression of Christian mercy and love for those involved in sin. Now, this includes the excellent Christian response of crisis pregnancy centers and, and the showing of love and the compassion for individuals involved in performing abortions, remembering Jesus' compassion for us when we're sinning against him. Now, let's look also at a penitent plea, a penitent plea. One key to balancing our resentment against the ungodly is to keep our own sinfulness, even our own remaining sin, in mind and in view. Now, Asaph realizes and even admits that Jerusalem's destruction was caused not so much by the Babylonians as by the sin and the idolatry of its own people, bringing God's chastening wrath now, surrounded by such devastation, he prays in verse 8 of our psalm today, Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Now, some commentators have taken the reference to our former iniquities to mean that the Jews blame their ancestors for their troubles. It's more than likely that the psalmist understands his own generation as having partaken in the habitual sins of the nation. Now, when, when Asa begs for God's compassion to come speedily, what he's saying is that, that God should not take strict account of the people's sins, lest his chastisement lasts longer than Israel can even survive. God's purpose in discipline is to bring his people to repentance and to bring us running back to himself like the prodigal son of Jesus' parable in Luke 15. Now, Asaph realizes this, as he's pleading for the compassion of the Lord and professes the low state of his people. And so far from pleading the, the supposed merits of Israel, he wisely uh, accounts for the grace of God and appealing to his mercy alone. David Dixon writes that a refuge is open to us in God's tender mercies who cannot destroy utterly a sinner fleeing to his mercy. And James Boyce points out that Asaph's example should be a rule, not only when Christians are particularly cast down, but whenever we come to the Lord in prayer. 
when he says, Every true prayer should have within it a confession of the worshiper's sins. This is because God is holy and we are not. And so if we are really praying to him, we will be aware of his holiness, and his holiness will convict us of our sinful state. And so in addition to confessing his sin and the sins of the people, Asaph improves his prayer further by appealing to the Lord as Savior. In verse 9 he says, Help us, O God of our salvation. And so Asaph is again like Jonah, who, who through prayer regained his awareness of the grace of God, even in a place of despair. Jonah concluded in Jonah 2.9 that salvation is of the Lord. It is God's nature to save sinners who call on his name, and it glorifies him to be treated in this way. And Asaph adds, for the glory of your name, in verse 9. David Dixon writes, It is the glory of the Lord that forgets sin, and when remission of sin is prayed according to God's promise, the Lord is engaged. The psalmist writes in verse 9 of our psalm, Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Charles Spurgeon writes, This is masterly pleading. No argument has such force as this. God's glory was tarnished in the eyes of the heathen by the defeat of his people, and the profanation, profan, profanation of his people, therefore his distressed servants, implore his aid that his great name may no more be the scorn of blaspheming enemies. Now, the covenant nation's very well-being was bound up with the reputation of its God. And the nation either feared the Lord or despised him based on the success of the people. Now, with, with this in mind, Asaph pleads in verse 10 of our psalm, Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpour blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. And rather than allow the nations to believe that Israel's God had been defeated, Asaph calls for God to educate them through displays of conquering might. Now, this prayer may be seen to have been answered, at least in part, through the faithful exploits of Daniel and his friends during their captivity in Babylon. And though completely disempowered in, in the weapons of this world, these faithful servants were successful in defying Nebuchadnezzar, even from within the heart of his empire. On one infamous occasion, the Babylonian rulers set up a golden statue and required everyone to worship it. Only the Israelite youth refers to serve the gods of Babylon or even treat the emperor's image as divine. And when threatened to be cast into a fiery furnace, they still refuse, defying the evil power of the king. In Daniel 3, 16-17, it says this, O Nebuchadnezzar, our, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And when they were thrown into a furnace so hot that, that their prison guards were consumed when casting them into flames, the faithful Jews were delivered by the kind of supernatural intervention that Asaph was seeking. Now Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed to his aides, Did we not cast three men into the fire? But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods in, in verses 24 and 25. And as a result, the same Babylonian conqueror who had despoiled Jerusalem in Asaph's time gave praise and glory to Israel's God in Daniel 3.28, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him, and set aside the king's command, and yield up their bodies, rather than serve and worship any god except their own. 
You see, God delivered the Israelites after the destruction of Jerusalem, not by immediately restoring their city, but rather by empowering their faith in the land of idols. It, it is a great, it is as great a miracle for God to strengthen his people's faith in the midst of trials as it is to remove the trials altogether. In fact, if Jerusalem was Asaph's concern, God's chief concern was the faith of his people. Now, realizing this priority urges Christians to pray in their trials for God's will to be done. For when God simply causes Christians today to defy the spirit of a wicked age through faith in the gospel, a mighty conquest is one that displays God's glory in the world. 1 John 5, 4 says this, This is a victory that has overcome the world our faith. And so the key issue in God's concern was Israel's need to truly repent of sin. Asaph understood that sin was at the heart of the nation's travail and sought to even repent on behalf of his generation. But the lesson had not been sufficiently learned. The time for repentance would would come more than a generation later when the elderly Daniel realized that the 70-year period foretold for Israel's captivity was coming to an end in Jeremiah 20, 10 through 11. And so Daniel took up the plea of Psalm 79 and sought from God the mercy that resulted in the restoration of Jerusalem and the temple in Daniel 9, 17 through 19, which says, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And now, not only was sin the decisive issue for the ancient Jews, needing to be dealt with by God's mercy before his blessing could be restored, but sin is also the first issue that must be settled between us and God. St. Augustine realized this when he was deeply convicted for his sin, but was not able to commit to Jesus Christ. And so in anguish, he prayed Psalm 79, verse 8, which says, Do not remember against us our former iniquities, bound in his guilt. It was immediately after this prayer that Augustine heard children singing a song with the words, Tolde leg, tolde leg, meaning take up and read, take up and read. And so he took up Paul's letter to the Romans and thereby found the forgiveness he needed in the grace of Jesus Christ. You see, God's answer to Augustine was essentially the same prayer that God had in response to Asaph's plea in Psalm 79. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, as we see in Romans 3, 23 and 24. You see, only when you have confessed your sin and found forgiveness in the blood of Jesus Christ alone will you have peace with God and receive the peace that your soul needs from God through Christ. The scripture declares in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Next, let's consider a grateful plea. Now, Psalm 79 presents an outraged plea and a penitent plea, concluding with a grateful plea that ends with praise for the grace of God in verse 13. But we are people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Now, how remarkable it is that a psalm that began in such anguish should end in such praise. The reason for this change of heart is, having turned to God in prayer, Asaph remembered what God is like and found reason only to hope in the Lord with a grateful heart. 
He shows us that one of the greatest needs of Christians today who who are suffering most greatly is a renewed awareness of the great God that we serve and whom we follow. For instance, the prayer of Psalm 79, it indicates that uh, a scene of horror and despair. Asaph remembers the compassion of the Lord. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us in verse 8. In verse 11, he cries out, let the groans of the prisoners come before you. And so perhaps Asaph remembers an episode from earlier in Israel's history when, when the nation was held in torment of Egyptian slavery. The book of Exodus records that God heard the groans of his people in bondage as they cried out to him in Exodus 2, 23-24. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so if God has shown great compassion in the past and have remembered his covenant promises to even save those who trust him, that Asaph could, could not only hope in God's compassion, but also praise him for it. Is that your response today to the difficulties, to the trials? Even, even in the book of James, in James 1, 2, we are to consider it pure joy, brothers, when we face trials of various kinds, knowing the scripture says that the testing of our faith produces patience and steadfastness. That should be our response to trials. Not to accuse God, not to blame God, not to, not, to, not to ridicule God or complain to God, but to pour out our hearts and, and to express our thankfulness, our gratitude, to remember the Lord's goodness and His power and His grace. Second, the, the psalmist remembers the power of the Lord and gives Him thanks for it in verse 11. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. And from Asa's point of view, the bare survival of the nation, it seems unlikely apart from the Almighty's intervention. Now Christians, they look back on the history that follow learning in Scripture of a great multitude of God's saving acts. Most importantly, by God's intervention in raising Jesus, Israel's true Messiah and Savior, from the grave after his crucifixion for our sins. Now Paul informed us that this same this same immeasurable great power in Ephesians 1, 19 through 20 is extended towards those who believe. The same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And what reason we have to praise the God and Father of our risen Lord Jesus Christ amid the afflictions, amid the temptations, because of his saving power in Christ alone. Now, Third, Asaph remembers and even praises the justice of God, realizing the wicked will not escape an eternal judgment unless they turn to God and repent. Psalm 79, 12 says, Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. Now, sevenfold restitution was a way of expressing God's full justice for the entirety of sin. In Psalm 73, for example, the psalmist was agreed for the sins of the wicked until he went into the sanctuary where he remembered the teaching of God's word and the coming of judgment on those who would not repent. Now, he says in verse 18 of Psalm 73, Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. Asaph exclaimed in Psalm 73:18 that realizing that the terrible end that will befall the wicked, Christians are overwhelmingly to be grateful just to be forgiven of our sins and remember to praise God for both his justice on sin and forgiveness through faith in Christ. Now, fourth, Asaph praises God for his faithfulness. In Psalm 79, 13, he says, But we are people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. 
And so even with a, a broken city, a burned temple, and a graveyard of slain servants around him, the psalmist realizes that the church is the flock under the care of the Lord. So believers who suffer terribly in this life will have no such pains in the life to come when the good shepherd has led all of his flock into the house of the Lord forever. God will be faithful. Now, just as Jeremiah remembered God in Lamentations during the same disaster, Asaph finds praise for God in his faithful covenant love in Lamentations 3, 22-23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I promise you, if you'll pray this that ver, those verses in Lamentations 3, 22-23, your heart is going to be inflamed and reminded of the great truth that God's love does endure forever, that his joy is an everlasting fount, and that in him is, as Psalm 1611, pleasures forevermore, joy forevermore, because this is who God is. Our God is the I am God. He is the only one who can give us real joy, real peace, real love. All else is, is sinking sand. All else is, as Ecclesiastes 3 says, vanity and grasping for the wind. So last, as we wrap up our time together, let's consider how glorious the day of the coming of our God. Psalm 79, as we've talked about, is prayed every week at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, which is made of the surviving stones from the original temple on Mount Zion that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed. Now, and, and lamenting even today the very disaster for which Aesop prayed in Psalm 79 some 2,600 years ago, the Jews expressed the, the same awareness of the great loss that they suffered. The full calamity of the lost temple is realized when we remember that there alone were the atoning sacrifices offered for the people's sin. And so Aesop Christ atoned for our sins in Psalm 79.9. It raises, that raises a desperate question for us. How would sins be atoned for when the place of atonement has been destroyed? In answering the prayer of Psalm 79, God showed his compassion. He showed his power. He showed his faithfulness most gloriously in his provision of the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, how tragic it is it that the Jews that ask this question at the Wailing Wall today by praying Psalm 79, when in fact Asaph's answer was fully granted 2,000 years ago when Jesus the Messiah made atonement for his people's sins in their place and was buried and rose again. The Apostle John rejoiced that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is a propitiation for our sins, as 1 John 2, 1-2 says. And so if Asaph could look forward into history, not knowing how God would answer and still conclude with thanks and praise for the faithful love of God, how much more ought we who look back on the cross never forget the praise that God is due? That is, from our perspective, we also look forward to Christ's return, when according to his word, God will give a final and consummate fulfillment to all of his promises in, in a glory that will never end. George Hone thus exalts, how glorious will be the day when triumphant over sin and sorrow over everything that exalted and opposed itself, the church universal shall behold the adversary disarmed forever, while she herself, placed in pastures of joy and led to the waters of eternal comfort, shall from age to age incessantly sing the praises of her great shepherd and bishop, her king and her God. Wow. 
What a quote that is by George Horn. And what a reality. We even see this at the very end of, of Paul's life in 2 Timothy 4. What he, what he wants is, he, or 2 Timothy 3, what he wants is he wants his something to read. He wants his parchment and he wants something warm to wear. And he longs, he says there, for the day of the Lord, the day when his faith will become sight. He longs to be with the Lord. He longs to be with his Savior, his King. Do you today long for the same, dear Christian? Do you long for for the Lord to come back and establish his kingdom? Are you looking forward to that blessed hope that we have? You see, as Christians, we, we can preach the death and resurrection of Christ, but we must remember, like Paul did when in his words to Timothy, which are really for us, they're for our life and for our godliness. We're to look forward to the blessed hope, to the eminent return of our Lord, of our King. And no matter what you think about the timing and when all that's going to happen, it does not matter at the end of the day. What matters is that our King is returning. And He is the King. He is the King of Kings. And even now, in, in this time, at right now, at this in this moment, He is saving people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. He is calling people by his irresistible grace to repent and to believe. And he is bringing them to faith. He is calling them by his spirit through the faithful preached word of God. That is that the gates of hell, as Jesus said in Matthew 18, will not prevail. They will not prevail because Christ is building his church. He is building his church for the praise, for his praise, for his honor, for our good, and for the betterment of society. That is the best news ever. That is the news that we herald. We are to herald this message that in Christ, we have all that we need. Not all that we want, but all that we need, all that we truly need. Because God has dealt finally and fully with our sin that separates us from God so that we could be forgiven. We could be reconciled to God. We could be redeemed by God. We could be declared not guilty by God. We could be adopted as friends of God, no longer slaves in the, in the, 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 the smorgasbord of our society, dead to our trespasses and sins, but made alive, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, to God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. And so the more that we remember this message, the more that, that we are shaped and molded by the message itself. See, this, this shows in our response to our trials, to our difficulties. Because our trials and our difficulties, they show us our hearts. They reveal what is really in the heart. Is it the honor of God, the praise of God, or, or are we all about ourselves and it's a question that you should think about this week are you in the midst of a trial are you in the midst of a difficulty and do you see that even in that challenge even in that situation that that god is molding you he's shaping you to be more like his son you see one of my mentors now with the lord he says that god hand tailors the situations of our lives He does this under the hand of providence. He's using those situations that seem so outrageous, so out out there. 
and he's turning them around, as Genesis 50, 20 says, and he's using them for our good and for his glory. That means that there is not a square inch as Abraham Kuyper over which God does not say, mine. If you belong to Christ, you are his and he is yours. And everything in the cosmos, the stars, the space, everything, our planet, the, all the planets, you, me, we belong to God by virtue of him being the creator and, and yet also everything belongs to our covenant Lord. And one day your, your response to this message is, is going to determine whether you go to hell, a place of unrelenting, unending punishment, or to be with the Lord in glory. That is to say, if you will not repent and believe in Christ, you're still going to face this Lord. The question is, is whether you're going to face him, knowing him as king and Lord and master, or you're going to face him as judge. Because the non-Christian, let me talk to you for just a second. You're going to face this Lord, whether you believe in him or not. Where you think all of my good works will just add up and this king who paid for me that you're talking about, <coughs> he'll just let me in to his house, into heaven. But see, entrance into the Lord's house, into heaven, is restricted only to those who repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus himself taught this in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to me except through the Father. Acts 4, 12. There is salvation in no other name than in Jesus' name. The, the Philippian jailer recognized this. As Paul preached this to him in Acts 16, calling him and his household to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. This is the good news. That you can be saved from the wrath of God to come. You, Jesus announced this message of repentance in his ministry. The apostles proclaimed this message. We are to proclaim this message. And God uses this message. Repent. You are a sinner. Repent. Have genuine sorrow over your sin. Turn away from your sin. And to your Savior and Lord and King. And you will be saved. There is no salvation in any other name. There is no other hope. And yet we can say also that the repentance is not just the door to get, that gets us into heaven. Repentance is the Christian life. As John Calvin said, repentance is not just the start of the Christian life. It is the Christian life. Meaning that the Christian, the Christian life is defined from beginning to to end from beginning, from middle to end, and everywhere in between by repentance. So that's good news because we need the Lord. Even Charles Spurgeon, who I quoted earlier, he said, I have a great need of Christ and a great Christ for my need. Do you recognize that need today, Christian? Have you forgotten your need of God's grace, his His, His transforming power his preserving grace that saved you have you forgotten the costly grace of god in christ alone have you become apathetic and numb to that grace just living however you want to live have you forgotten that the call of being a disciple 
is to take up your cross, as Jesus said in Luke 9, 23 through 27, and to follow Jesus in all of life, no matter the cost. Count the cost. It costs something to follow our Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come now to the end of our time together in and looking at Psalm 79, We're reminded that under the providence of God, you orchestrate all things in our lives for our good. Even the the times when it seems like the trials of life are all that we can see. When there is great distress and there is great difficulty and great affliction. Lord, you are still the same and you will always be the same. In, your, in the person and work of Christ, you have come as near as, as is possible. In the incarnation, you came under the sentence of death to pay for our sins in our place. Born as the virgin, virgin born, born under the sentence of death to pay for our sins in our place, to be buried and to rise again. Lord, what, what more could we possibly need than that? What we need is to realize not just our great need of you, but, uh, but our great hope and our great expectation that we have because of you. So Lord, help us to think about these things help us, and help us to remember, help us to reflect on the costly grace, as Bonhoeffer said, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in the book, his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Help us to reflect on the costly grace and the winning ways in which we cheapen your grace, where we don't take your grace as seriously as we ought. And Lord, help us. Help us to cry out to you. Oh God, help us. That is the cry in faith, trusting the Lord, leaning not on our own understanding as the Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, but in all our ways acknowledging you. Lord, help us to acknowledge you in, whether, in what we say, in what we think, in what we meditate on in our hearts, in what we view with our eyes. May it all bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.